0: We're joined today by Michael Gordon from Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Fox & Roach Realtors, serving the Philadelphia metro area. For nearly the past 15 years, Michael has been the in-house marketing director for his wife and partner, Robin Gordon. Michael is responsible for the fast response seller marketing campaigns, experience with integrated marketing technologies, and works closely with technology partners and vendors, to ensure that the team's listings get maximum exposure in the local marketplace. With Michael's experience and assistance and under Robin's expert leadership, the Gordon team has achieved over $1.25 billion in career sales and exceeded $159 million in 2014 annual sales. Now, let's welcome Michael to the call as we join our host, Tim Harris.
1: So, listeners, this is part two of the Michael Gordon interview. Um, one interview with Mike was not good enough, so now we're doing part two. Well, the reality <laughs> of it was he had some technical issues yesterday, so this is a part two. But so, Michael, let's just jump right back in where we left off yesterday. Good enough?
2: Sure, sure. Sounds All
1: right. You, you said a few things. You said a few things yesterday that had me pretty much thinking about the radio for the rest of the day. And you said something in particular that I think is worth drilling down on you said one of the reasons why you feel maybe one of the elements, main elements to your success and Robin's success has been your feeling that you were a bit of an outsider and and, and as a result of that, you had to work a little bit harder to be a little bit more strategic. Can you drill down on that a little bit more? Because I think that, honestly, that resonates with probably every single one of our listeners.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know that my motivation came so much from being an outsider. I think rather it came from this chip on my shoulder, um, in that, uh, uh I had someone in, in, my, in my life who, who told me that, um, uh, I, I needed to, I needed to only count on my, myself. I couldn't count on others. I couldn't rely on others to do anything. Um, and I couldn't depend on them. So I think that, you know, I, I came from this background of, um, scarcity and, um, and so I think that I was super motivated and super competitive to make sure that 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 that, would nev- that I never would have that problem, that I wouldn't, uh, that I would overcome this chip that I have. So I don't think it was so much being an outsider to the area because, you know, I've lived in this area my whole life, and so is Robin. So, uh, so, so I think that's where I was coming from.
1: Right. No, I'm sorry if I used the word outsider. That's, that's what I am. But in terms of essentially being part of the establishment, because you're now selling the houses that the establishment live in, and that's not that's not necessarily something that happened organically. You had to basically work your way into that. It wasn't given to you. I know when Julie and I sold real estate, as you will remember, we sold real estate in an area called New Albany Country Club. And in, those, in that particular area, the real estate market, as was the case with yours, was dominated by people that basically had most of their listing business from social connections. Or religious connections. In other words, they were connected, and we are the interlopers. We are the outsiders. So, in order for us to get dominance in that market, we had to do what you guys did, which is basically outwork them. And at the end of the day, that's what we're in. That's what won the day. The next thing you said from yesterday is um, well. Let me energy. address was that really... also.
2: What... I'm sorry. Yeah, well, go ahead. Yeah, let me no, just address no this. One of the things that, that 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 happened was at that time was that we have three young children. And the, those, the, they were attending schools, um, and the schools were in a small, you know, small geographic market area. And so we combined the idea of, okay, let's do some uh, targeted uh, direct mail to those areas where these families lived. And, uh, and I think that the combination of the geographic farming and that relationship marketing sort of bolstered our, our results, and, and and so, uh, you know, when you have young children, there's an affinity for the families. The kids participate in, in 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 activities after school. They do soccer. They do dance. They do those things. So you have a chance to interact with these families. And if you you're if you're visible in the mailbox and you're visible in person, new develop new relationships are developed. So I think we were able to sort of. Um, uh, sort of network our way through the relationships that we developed with our kids at the time.
1: Okay. Well, you're actually making it a perfect time for me to pivot and talk about marketing and lead generation because that's what a lot of people want to know. Um, so you mentioned postcards. You mentioned working social networks, and I don't mean the online variety. You mentioned uh, you're, you're working uh, within your the, the communities of the schools and the sports activities and the other things. So drill down let them know so let's assume michael we're talking with folks that want to be like michael and robin right they want to be like you guys they want to have they want to be making millions and millions of dollars in personal income they want to have the lifestyle you have they want to have the success you've had but they don't want to take as long as you guys have taken to do it not like you've taken that long you know 10 years but still they want to do it quicker what would be the three or maybe four primary spokes or sources of business that they would want to focus on if they're wanting to sell in high end or in your market ultra high end markets.
2: Well, I would um what I would do is I would identify a targeted area that um that had a reasonable amount of turnover where there was no one dominant agent. And that may or may not be possible, but I think I would start there. And I would have a multi-pronged approach with respect to marketing I would, um, as I suggested, I would be in the mailbox, and I would do a variety of things um, from just listed, just sold, to market reports to demonstrate your success and local market expertise. And at the same time, I would do everything I could to be visible to those very people that you were mailing to. Um, I would at the same time start to explore uh explore online lead opportunities um, through a variety of okay. different ways. That, yep.
1: That's a bit that's a deep well. So let's just pivot back to what you were just talking about because I okay. promise you yep. I'll get hate mail hate email from our listeners if I let you get away with what you just said. Okay. So you said you're mailing postcards. They want to know what the postcards are Uh, be specific. You said you're mailing market data newsletter. I know what you're talking about. But drill Mm -hmm. down and tell them what you're talking about. Because you're not talking, you are talking about pieces that look beautiful, that are professionally designed, uh, that aren't being provided by your broker, that were, um, that have established a high-end looking brand for you guys that was unique to Michael and Robin Gordon. But you're not talking about something that's that sophisticated. So let them know, give them some details.
2: Well, I think simplicity is what it's all about, and I think with direct mail, you have a very short period of time where the, the recipient is, is looking at the mail over their trash can. So I think you have to get your point across simply and quickly and only make a couple of points. So the points we try to make is demonstrating our success through uh, Just Sold, for example, where we'll indicate three or four homes that we sold in the area, we indicate a uh, a short blurb about our specific um, results for that particular sale, like, for example, sold for 98% of asking in just 18 days. There you and, go. And let's, so let's,
1: Mike, Mike, just stop there for a second. Listeners, I hope you paid attention to what he just said. A just sold by itself doesn't mean bunk. He, he is saying, we just sold this house, uh, and we sold it, by the way, in 18 days, and then he told them why that was important versus the average days in the market which is say 47. So he's not just saying we sold it. He's explaining to potential sellers why what he just sold was worth them paying extra attention to. They sold it quicker. Then the next thing you guys heard him say is he was talking about list to sell price ratio. Our how this property sold at, you know, 99.9% or whatever it was of the original asking price versus the average in the marketplace which might be only 96 or 97%. So it's not okay just to tell them sold. You have to tell them why they should care. Why they should care that you sold it. What makes that sale unique? Otherwise, you know, as they're hovering over the trash can, it's not even going to get red, but if you have some statistical information that's showing why you're better, uh, why this? You know why you're the better choice, or at least they should consider you. Um, you know that's the type of information that's compelling. Excellent, Michael. Any other little suggestions on yeah, the direct yeah, postcard specifically?
2: Yes, okay. the other thing that we do on that postcard is we include a testimonial for one of the sellers who sold, whose homes were sold that we're featuring. So we have we have multiple homes that we're presenting with a blurb about each one that that, that describes the result. Um, a testimonial and on the most recent campaign we added something new and, um, and and we've added a tagline that says robin sold it so on the postcard by uh, you know it, it says robin sold it and we've been we've been including that on our signage as well a similar kind of uh, you know round circle on the sign that said robin sold it and even in the high end, it's interesting, we're starting to get a lot of traction with that, where people are repeating that line to us. Um, we go into a listing appointment, and they say, oh, I want a Robin sold, sold it on our sign someday. So it's funny the way, little, you know, simple tends to work.
1: But don't you think it's also, well, listeners, hear what he just said, simple works. Make your message quick and and succinctly, and you know, obviously, effectively. But also, don't be fearful of little gimmicky things like what he just said. Because at the end of the day, what's the most important thing to any seller, Michael? What is it that they're looking for ultimately?
2: The highest price, the most favorable terms, and the least aggravation.
1: And the sign that says sold, right? At the end of the day, that's what they're hiring you to do. Sure. um, Listeners. Uh, don't confuse a service with a result. That's the other thing I know a lot of agents do, is they'll try to sell the service, but ultimately what the seller wants is a result. Don't be confused about that. If you're going to spend, if you think they're buying you because of the wonderful team and your service and all the rest of it, trust me when I tell you that is maybe 10% of the decision. The rest of it, 90% of the decision is your track record, or at least their confidence that you can deliver the result. Um, you know, so that's what Michael's Cards does and his direct mail does. So, you know, they're buying the result. They're not buying the service. Don't forget that. Newsletter. You do a newsletter still, correct? Yes?
2: Yes, yes. Well, what, what it's actually morphed into is a is a quarterly report, which doesn't present a lot of, of uh, you know, of statistical detail because I found that that wasn't being received very well, but rather it's, it's our interpretation of what the numbers say. So uh, w- what we do is we 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 evaluate the the numbers and we say in our market this is what's happening, this is the trend, you know, th- and 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 we find that to be uh, you know, more well received by by the by the uh, by the recipients.
1: I'm sure because you're translating the data um, and you're showing that you guys are an expert and it's not just some cut and paste from some, you know, punched out newsletter that a lot of agents use. Uh, so postcards. They, these are jumbo postcards. They're on, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, like 80 pound gloss stock. Um, they're like what five by seven or what, what's the? They're actually not, lar-
2: yeah. They're larger oh, than that. Now, where the, the 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 post office allows for a larger size than uh, than uh, eight, I, I can't remember the exact dimensions. But I was doing smaller cards and I and I and I found out that a larger size would would not increase the uh the cost of the postage. So I increased the size to the to, to the maximum I could and and still have the same postage cost.
1: So let's go postal nerd on these guys. Um uh, yep. uh, carrier route sorted is what he's talking about. So you guys just Google that and research it on your own. But he's he's direct mailing to a carrier route, which does make it so your postal rate is less. There's some. Uh, they treat the carrier route stuff like they treat catalogs, which, in other words, means they can deliver it when they get around to it. You know, so it's not as consistent as a first-class stamp. Uh, so research that on your own. Okay. So the larger format and, is important. Because, go ahead.
2: Yeah, and and the 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 key, the key area that you just mentioned is that the. The geographic, the, the, focusing on a geographic area where you're concentrating on a specific area is really important. So not only do you get the most cost-effective rate for the mailing, but it's but it but it's it, it maximizes your results. To concentrate in an area where ultimately you'll have you know sale signs, you'll have sold signs, and that They're local market will see. Pardon me.
1: Right. It's reinforcing. The postcards are reinforcing. The personal contact are reinforcing. The sold signs are reinforcing. They seeing you guys volunteering. It. It's all basically, uh, uh, you know, kind of a tartan of success. And I want to. I want to show all the elements to that. So let's. We'll. We'll drill down these extra points. A larger format postcard, I'll answer the, only, my, the question I was asking you, are important listeners because if you have a larger format postcard and they take all their mail out of their box and it's just a normal postcard, it's going to hide behind their utility bill and it will get tossed. You know, They just won't pay attention to it or it will slip inside a catalog or some other something so they won't pay attention to it. But a larger format card benef- is beneficial because literally it's just bigger and bigger means they're going to have you're going to increase your likelihood that they're going to see it. Um so there's that. How many postcards do you mail out per month?
2: We're doing uh right now about 15,000.
1: Okay, you didn't start out at 15,000 though.
2: No, I started you know I, I you know you eat the elephant one bite at a time. So uh I think we started at somewhere around 5,000. We focused on that smaller, you know, area that we tried to, you know, get Dominate and get as much traction, and then scaled it larger over time.
1: Um, so the uh, cost per—how frequently do you mail, and what's the cost per card? All in.
2: All in. I think it runs around uh, 20, 29 cents or so. All okay. in. I'm, I'm printing. I'm printing a year's worth of, of cards. And, ahead of time. Uh, ahead of time. So that way, I don't have yep. to you know, constantly deal with it, and um, and so, you know, we're sending them about uh, once uh, once a month.
1: Okay, so you're talking about spending, on average, less than $5,000 a month to mail 15,000 cards. Did so I do the math correctly?
2: Yep, that's right.
1: Okay. All right, so let's hover there for a second, listeners. The actual number is 4350. So he's talking about something this unique that's, you know, it just his – one of the things Michael's always done well, he's not going to give himself credit for this, is he and Robin have a fantastic eye for um, design. And the cards themselves are beautiful. The logo they have is, I don't know how much you've changed it since you the know, past, over the years, but the, the way that their marketing looks made it so that all their competitor stuff looked like it was from the 1970s. So it was elegant, it was modern, it was classy without being brash. And, you know, there's a balance to all that. He, he hired a, a boutique design firm out of New York City to come up with this. Now, this was back before you had companies that, you know, or have proliferated the marketplace, all these Elance types. They'll go out and do some great design work for you for nothing. But he spent originally, now this was, you know, years and years ago, he spent originally tens of thousands of dollars to get all this stuff right. The advantage that all of you have, listeners, is that you can find uh, folks like Michael that are selling real estate at a high level and you can kind of emulate their designs. I know you love me saying that, but it's still true, you know, <laughs> yeah. right? Bo, well, you do yep. a little bit of that, too. I mean, you're paying attention to what top producers are doing, and you're doing a little <clears throat> copying yourself, yes?
2: Tim, there, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel.
1: Amen, brother.
2: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <nicely> sad,
1: right? <laughs> well... You remember that Chinese proverb, right? A smart man learns from his mistakes. A brilliant man learns from the mistakes of others. <laughs> the nice, the nice thing about real estate is we have so many great examples of things, of of mistakes that we can avoid if we just pay attention to it. All right, so that's the direct mail piece. Um, I yes. think listeners will be surprised how effective it is. How long did it take for you to actually start getting any kind of traction doing direct mail? Was it right away, or did did it take no. a year? Or how long did it take?
2: It took. It was surprising. In fact, I remember when we we sent out our first cards, not getting any response at all. And I called the uh, the, the advertising agency, wondering if the cards were actually sent because I couldn't believe we got no response. <laughs> but it, but it actually is sort of like you know you're making you're making a long term commitment to this, and it, it 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 takes a while. I think it took at least a year before we started to see any results at all. So. Uh, if you're going to if you're going to select a geographic farm pick a size that uh you can afford to stick with it and be persistent for that period of time before you before you get results
1: well you said something else right which is really important and I shouldn't have let let it get by you need to drill down on where you're going to mail michael started to talk about um doing some MLS homework ahead of time, knowing what your headwinds are going to be in terms of your competitors. And generally speaking, Michael, it's very rare to find a market where there isn't a real dominant number one and number two agent. But what you'll find, guys, when you get in the MLS is the number one agent will usually be doing twice the production of whatever number two and three are. Um, But that still doesn't mean that those markets still can't be attacked by a fresh approach. Because what happens is, especially in small enclaves like where Michael works—I mean, small with quotes around it—they'll the sellers actually kind of get burned out on having so few choices, <laughs> so few options. <laughs> yeah, you know, they'll actually look for somebody that's doing something different. Uh, uh, you know, taking a more um, maybe aggressive isn't the right word, but a different approach to how to get homes sold. And then um, another thing that you could, should be strategic about is choosing an area where there is turnover there's certain areas where people just don't move well mailing postcards there is just dumb uh, and there's you know you look to the days in the market you want to know the macro trends that are affecting that market you want to know that for example if you're going to start investing real dollars into a particular geographic area with direct mail that it's going to be viable 24 36 months from now so you might want to look at the employment trends in the area you might want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to make that particular community you're thinking about farming look obsolete in comparison to say a new construction area that's going in across town. That happened in our market in Columbus, Ohio. There's this beautiful area called Muirfield, but when New Albany started getting developed, it was clear on the other end of town. It started to, you know, basically suck the sales out of Muirfield. So be very, very strategic before you start doing direct mail. And then when you do, you gotta buckle down and look at it as a long term commitment that you're not going to get any sort of um benefit from for at least twelve months. You might get lucky but for the most part, that's really how it works. It's not, you know, it, it's a um, it's an investment. I like how Michael said that. All right, so Michael, let's talk yes. about other sources of business for you. And please, don't uh, don't just say I network. Okay, be do gen- don't be general. Be specific. Drill down. If you again, your uh, someone's wanting to emulate your success, they want to accomplish you know what you guys have accomplished in half the time. They can only choose three to five things. First thing you said you'd suggest that they do is direct mail. What's next?
2: Well, we had a lot of success with open houses. Uh, Mm. And and interestingly, there is an opportunity to not only pick up buyers, but also um, sellers as well. Because we found that sellers are out in the neighborhood looking at homes to try to find uh, who – they're looking. They're looking at competitive homes because they're going to put their house up on the market, so they want to see what the competition is. But then they start to meet the realtors, and so um, we found that we met a lot of prospective sellers through that uh, through that approach. The other thing that we did was we we, we did uh, uh, sneak preview neighborhood open houses. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, Tim.
1: Sure, of course. But describe yeah, to the listeners. Yeah. So,
2: Okay. So, the Steek Preview neighborhood open house was an open house which occurred before the before the the regular open house, and it, and we invited the neighbors to the house with a thought that perhaps um they might have someone who would be interested in uh, in that particular house because they're so fond of the neighborhood. But it also gave us a chance to meet them under really favorable circumstances. So, again, this was a way to to network with these you know with these local people who were in our you know geographic farm under the most favorable circumstances possible so i think open houses were were uh were very important to us to gain traction in the beginning
1: again um half the folks that walk in generally speaking and the sneak previews you're inviting the neighbors just listen to everything he's saying guys and chances are those neighbors uh you know, you're establishing a relationship with them. There's some rapport. There's some level of comfort. They're seeing that you're making an extra effort to get the property sold. And, you know, Michael, here's an interesting question. How sheepish are you guys about finding out someone's motivation? A lot of realtors hold themselves back because they're afraid to ask relatively direct question to find out, take the temperature of the actual lead. Uh, what's your mindset about that?
2: Well, I think it's really important to find out what the motivation is, and I think that you know the the key the, the I, I know a lot of uh, the key question is when. You know, we can talk about you know what they want and where they want to be, but the when they want to move is the most critical question of all. And I do know that uh, that the idea of uh, you know of of, of of approaching approaching people and and sort of being direct might be outside their comfort level, but that's what it's all about. It's it's asking asking those kinds of questions. Um and doing it in a professional way, but I think it's critical.
1: So listeners, for example, when you run across a buyer, um, you know, there's a prequal his coaching clients, it's actually I'm gonna just message this to you. Use the scripts, at least the first like seven questions, exactly the way we've written them. The third or fourth question is, by the way, which house in the neighborhood are you thinking about selling? When you're talking with a buyer prospect, make sure you ask that question right off the top. Because what's going to happen is a lot of you guys try to establish rapport. You try to make them like you. You try to find commonalities. You try to fake friend them, right? So in the midst of fake friending them, they know what you're doing. They're not going to want to... Nine times out of ten, they're just going to want to get away from you and get off the phone. So when you first get them on the phone, use the script and ask them, you know, third question down from the script, uh, coaching clients, make sure you use it, is, by the way, which house in the neighborhood are you thinking about selling? You will find, you'll be stunned and amazed how frequently they actually have not necessarily a primary home but other properties that they are thinking about selling. So, Michael, here's an interesting um, question a lot of, uh, or challenge, I think, a lot of our other high-end coaching clients have had on the coasts. I mean this happened in New York, it happened in LA during the recession. You know, really at the end of the day when you're dealing with really high net worth folks, they don't have to sell ever, do they? I mean there's not really truly a have to sell situation. It's always just a strong desire to sell, true or false. Yes.
2: That's I think that's entirely true. And I think with a lot of those very high end clients the price is a function of what it's going to take to extricate them from the house. It has nothing to do with market (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it has nothing to do with market value. It has nothing to do with comps. It has nothing to do with anything. But at what point at which they're willing to 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 let go and 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 move on? And and I'll tell you, we have uh, a couple of you know, I have a competitor or two in my market that have what I consider to be a listing graveyard of of of, of, of properties where these clients are you know, they have ridiculous prices associated with their homes. And uh you know I, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in babysitting somebody over a long period of time who has no motivation to sell that that to me, I have a different deal. I only get paid when I sell the property. I don't get paid when I list it, so I'm not interested in you know and and the other thing is these list- you know listings are not like fine wine; they don't improve with age. So I'm, I'm not interested in having a listing that's sitting there unsold for a very long period of time, babysitting a seller who wants an unre- unrealistic price to extricate them from the
1: house. It goes back. It goes back to pre-qualifying, and and really at the end of the day, guys, when you're list- when you're dealing with high end, they're. Very rarely, it's truly a have-to-sell seller. There's not a seller that's getting relocated and they can't afford two house payments. There, there's not a seller that's worrying about having to, you know, sell the house because they have some financial issue. So when you're dealing with high-end folks uh, and you're trying to motivate them out of like, you know, the traditional ways you motivate, say, uh, you know, a non-high-end seller, um, it's not going to (laughs) work. So you better be sensitive to their financial uh, prowess and you better be sensitive to their financial fortitude because. They don't have to sell, and, and they're not going to react positively to you putting those types of pressures on them. So you, it's, a, it's a bit of a dance, and, and it is what Michael said. You, the deal has to make sense to them. But in, in, in many in many cases, when these guys have multiple homes, actually it makes the process easier because they have other places they can easily transition to. You know, So these are all skill sets you have to develop over time. Um, so in this, Michael, your market, is it a balanced market or is it a strong seller's market like most of the country?
2: Um, what's interesting is that our market has become very challenging at the high end, and our our average sales price has actually declined lately. I think, it, I think it's as a result of um, uh, a revitalization of Center City, Philadelphia, where we're finding more and more buyers like the idea of a walk-to location in an urban environment. So what, what we're finding is what we, previously we have, you know, either younger people or people that were empty nesters stay in the suburbs. We're finding they're circling, they're either circling back to the city or staying in the city longer than they had before. So we're getting competition uh, in the suburbs uh, to a revitalize uh, you know, uh, center city Philadelphia
1: someone just um, reminded me in chat someone just reminded me in chat we promised the listeners uh three primary lead generation spokes do you have another one in mind
2: um i think that online i think online is very important but i also would uh would encourage everyone to invest test and don't guess it's it, and so i i've done that i've done that with 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 google adwords i've done that with facebook um uh, and and it's important to, to measure and see exactly what the cost per lead is. I have found with pay click for example, that it's costing right now about $50 to, to generate uh, a lead. And industry standard 1% conversion on an Internet lead, that's $5,000 for each sale. And, and and I, I think that's unre- you know, unrealistic to you know to generate any kind of return. But I know it's market specific, and some are able to purchase internet leads for less money, depending upon how competitive Google is in your particular area. So, um, but I do think there's an opportunity in certain markets, for, certainly for uh, for internet leads. So I, I would I would pursue that. I would pursue. Uh, a seller strategy on Facebook, and a buyer strategy on AdWords.
1: Do high-end sellers see a team, generally speaking, as it's presented in the marketplace? Is that seen as an attribute or a detriment in the eyes of the seller?
2: Detriment. Okay, stop, stop, stop
1: right there. I want you to uh, want you, to, I want <laughs> you to re-say, because this is so true, right? And we've had <laughs> yeah. other... So that most, <laughs> Michael and I didn't practice this prior, but it's, it's always the same answer. Listeners, please, please listen. <laughs> High-end sellers, and I will go as far as to say most experienced sellers, will not see a team as an advantage. It used to be seen as an advantage 10, 15 years ago. But anymore, if you present yourself as a team, they're actually going to prefer somebody who has a different approach, even though that person might have assistance. So I'm handing it back to you to explain
2: i i find that none of our none of our sellers none of our clients want to get delegated to someone they The reason they hired us in the first place was because they thought that they were going to get they were going to get our attention and our expertise and uh, they're uh, I, they, they get very upset when they feel they don't have they're not getting uh, touches from us i don't care how frequently our our assistant reaches out with feedback uh and with housekeeping issues, they need to hear from us. And if they feel like they're not, uh, they're going to go elsewhere. So I don't. I have never advertised ourselves as a team. It's always been, you know, the Robin Gordon brand. Um, and uh, I think at the high end, uh, that makes just makes sense. I, uh, I I can't see doing it any other way.
1: Well, the pendulum swung the other way. That's what's happened. In the marketplace, and a lot of agents aren't aware of this, the pendulum is swinging away from, now we're not saying don't have assistance, don't misunderstand what we're saying, but strictly from a uh, consumer perspective. And, and, yeah, he's dealing with really wealthy homes, uh, really wealthy sellers, really expensive homes. But this is this is starting to percolate down into the lower ends because people have, the, the perception is, is I want to deal with the man or the lady who's running the show. I don't want to be delegated. And, um, you know, there's no elegant way for you to go in there and explain to a seller who's used to getting their way, who goes in there and you said, you know, we're talking Brioni suits and everything yesterday, (laughs) who's used to walking into Brioni and doesn't just buy off the rack. They actually walk into uh, Brioni and they are shown to the private room in the back. Okay, that's what type of sellers, you know, he's dealing with on a regular basis. Where they go to order their new Ferrari, they don't just walk into the dealership and order a Ferrari. They're, again, shown to a private room. That's what you guys have to understand, what the expectation is of these high-end sellers, and you have to meet them where they are. Um, You know, a lot of agents, Michael, they'll talk about service. I hate that term when I hear people talking about it. Like, I'll say, what is it that you do that's different? Why deliver better service? That's an intangible. But what does that mean to you? What is it that a seller receives when they list with Michael and Robin Gordon?
2: I think communication is the most important uh, the, the important service. Communication is important, but I but I also think that honesty is important. Hon- honesty is critical. They I think it's very important to be uh to be completely honest with them about about uh, uh, pricing. Um that's when the sale is made and 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 so I think that's uh that can't be underestimated how important that is. I also think that that uh, that they can expect us not to avoid confrontation. It's part of the job. So, if it, and I also believe there's this huge myth out here out there that the customer is always right. I don't think the customer is always right. I don't think the seller is always right. The seller often has unrealistic expectations about everything in the process, uh, starting with the price. So I think it's important for us to not be afraid. Uh, to explain to them exactly what uh, uh we feel and um, and and those who uh, and those who get it are going to be a good match for us, and those who don 't you know uh, they can go elsewhere
1: so in a world where people are used to getting their way and calling the shots, how do you subtly take control and then bring them down to the reality of the market without uh pissing them off?
2: Well, I think it's a matter of just simply, uh, you know, I, and I'll address this from a from a pricing standpoint. It's just a matter of going through uh, comparable sales. And, and it certainly helps having sold many of the homes, you know, having sold homes in the area where uh, we're speaking from a position of authority. But uh, it's just a matter of being genuine, uh, presenting the data, presenting the, 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 the comparables, and 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 explaining to the seller what the pricing should be or with respect to a uh res- respect to an offer uh and terms and describing what the terms are explaining what's customary and what's not customary but i think it's just a matter of being genuine and being honest um i i think there's just too much i think there's too much buying of listings and and too much overpricing and and the sellers are. i just don't think that i i think that's a huge mistake to make for any agent at at any point in their career
1: in the high end how much do you have to fight for commissions
2: um where we have to fight for commissions is is um, what we've seen an increasing um clawback of uh of of on, on inspection on and repair issues it's not uncommon for us to see forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars of request for um, a seller concession on price as a result of the as a result of the home inspection issues. So what what's been happening is the seller is asking us to take a commission hit to absorb some of that clawback, and that's what we really have to fight for you know you know fight to hold hold our deal together with respect to our, our commission.
1: That's happening in all price ranges. How do you fight against that? Are you doing pre-inspections? Are you sort of laying the groundwork that their deferred maintenance isn't going to be your problem? I mean, how do you set yourself up so you're not going to be set up when it comes time to fix their leaky roof?
2: It's a matter of managing expectations on the front end. And when, you, and, and when you're, when you're um, pitching the listing, you, we talk about the landmines and hurdles that have to, that have to be overcome along the way. You know, one of the landmines that we overcome is the, you know, is the home inspection, and we explain to them what to expect. The other landmine that has to be overcome is the appraisal. Um, so, you know, we talk through that, in a, you know, while we're pitching the listing so that the seller has some idea as to what's going to happen uh, uh, throughout the you know, process.
1: So in a world where you guys are at the top of, your, well I don't think you'll agree with this statement but I'll say it anyway just so you can refute me in a world where you're at the top of your game where you guys have climbed the mountain that you set out to climb you know about a decade ago, what's next?
2: Well one of the things one of the things where I think I uh, I made a huge mistake and and I would uh, I would certainly advise uh, newer agents to, to think through this but you know we sell uh an asset class this that it, it's probably one of the best products in the world you know it has it has it has such an op- it has such such opportunities for for owners of 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 real estate for to make money from appreciation and the tax benefits and the leverage that you get and 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 particularly as a professional investor i i made a mistake by not by not purchasing uh, rental properties um in my career. And so uh, I, I th- that's what I would like to do. I, I would like to start to to purchase investment properties and take advantage of um you know the knowledge that we the local knowledge that we have and and and, and start to start to uh develop a portfolio of income producing um properties. I think that I, well, I yeah. yeah.
1: Real estate is the ultimate durable good, that's for sure. That's interesting that you said that, too. I think listeners will all, that, of everything we've talked about the past two days, I bet you that's the one that's going to be the most impactful, if you want to know the truth. Because that really can't be, the real estate, guys, as an investment vehicle is second to none. There's nothing, and it doesn't matter. Markets go up, markets go down. But there's no other type of investment where you can, not always, but where you can benefit from the de- depreciation, from the appreciation and from the cash flow, there's nothing else like that. You know, a business doesn't necessarily, you know, have all those benefits. Some will. That's the argument, right? Well, I started my own business. Well, you know what? You could, but it's you know, real estate for the most part is a passive thing. Stocks don't deliver on all three of those uh, categories. So, real estate really is second to none in terms of a way of building long-term wealth. Um, so, listeners, and- listen to what he said. That's fantastic that you were honest about that. Thank you.
2: And it's true. And and it's true of, you know, I don't care how much money you make selling selling real estate. It's almost impossible to get rich. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the reason, you know, you said that realtors don't retire because they can't. The way you get rich is not by selling the real estate. It's by owning it. And this is true of business owners, where you know they have a business, they've owned it for 60 years, and they happen to own the real estate. And at the end of the day, the real estate is 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 where, when they sell the real estate, that has more value than the business. So, um, I, you're,
1: yeah, you're reminding me of a really funny real estate client I had like 20 years ago. This guy uh, was looking for this really big estate in uh, you know in Columbus, and as uh, his way that he built wealth, Michael, is exactly what you just said. In this. 70s he had a bunch of roller skating rinks you know you remember those and well roller roller skating was a passing fad but he had all the real estate paid for and so all those roller roller skating rinks uh, became locations for big box stores (laughs) (laughs) you know they put they put a different elevation and he put all these ridiculous long-term leases to you know and and that's that's how he pivoted. now he became really rich off the paid off real estate Yeah, and I like what you said, too. Real estate itself, selling real estate won't make you rich. And rich is where your money works for you, and you no longer have to work for your money. You have to reinvest the profits that you make from selling real estate, which gets back to another recurring issue, is if you have no profits from your real estate business, you want to have everything to reinvest, and you'll never be able to build wealth. So it's, uh, you know, these are all little truisms, and it's it's nice to hear someone uh, at Michael's level telling you guys, reinforcing really the message that we tell you every single day on the radio because he just hit on three of the high points that we talk about uh, most days. So, Michael, one last question, albeit self-serving, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, Coaching, what has it meant to you in your success?
2: Well, um, it's so – it's actually just – it's so great, Tim, to have seen what you've accomplished having, you know, uh, been one of your very first uh, coachees. So – uh, but, but I can, I can say that you were so instrumental to what, uh, what I've achieved. And I think it gets back to, you know, not re reinventing the wheel yourself. I think I was able to get a fast start because I benefited from your experience and the experience of, uh, you know, of, uh, of your insight of your accountability, um, and uh, I, I I don't think we could have gotten the uh, the quick the quick resp- the, you know the, the sort of the rapid ascension that we did without coaching at that point in our in our career. So I don't think you can. I think you need to do it right away in your career. I would I would make that investment, and I know it'll pay off. It certainly did with us.
1: Well, so you're going to send me ten percent of all the revenue you guys have earned for the last <laughs> ten years, right? That that was the deal we had, right? I I don't remember Uh, I
2: remember writing out a check to uh, to my competitor if I didn't if I didn't accomplish something that was. (laughs) Oh Oh, I think it was a
1: gal too, wasn't it? Exactly. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was.
2: (laughs) <laughs> uh,
1: well, listen, Michael, we went away over you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I think without knowing it, you're more motivational and more inspirational than you think. I really love the fact that you're at a point where you are really embracing the whole idea of you know, contribution and uh, giving back to the industry. In, in my opinion, Michael, and, and you and Robin you know, I, are living testaments to this, there really is no other business um, that you can get into as an entrepreneurially-minded person that's better than selling homes. Just I don't even think commercial real estate is not as good. People will argue tech companies and all the rest of it. No. What you guys are doing now, your real estate licenses, you at some point had some inspiration to get your real estate license. This really is an industry without limits. And if you're not experiencing that, if you're not really completely uh, living and loving that mindset, you know, you do need to seriously check yourself on that because chances are it's your mindset that's holding you back from experiencing literally millions and millions of dollars in personal income. When Michael said he and his wife, have earned over a billion dollars or have added over a billion dollars in home sales, a billion and a quarter, something like that. Some of you are doing the math in your heads. <laughs> You're multiplying by uh, 3%. It is a huge number. And they've done that, guys, in a little less than 10 years. You can do the same thing. Be strategic. Be smart. Take action. That's the most important thing. And as always, if there's anything we can do for you, request a free coaching call. A lot of listeners are starting to reach out um, Michael, that are top-producing agents, you know, we've had a lot of top, we've been blessed with having some of those top-producing agents like yourself for coaching clients, um, and we're getting a lot more that are pivoting away from maybe some of the coaches they've had for a while. If you guys, if that, if that's you, I want you to email Julie and I directly at, tim at timandjulieharris.com and julie at timandjulieharris.com. And uh, Julie and I are, are considering, and we probably will take on 10 private clients each, um, as a lot of you guys know, we haven't been taking on private clients for years, but we're considering doing it because, frankly, we love doing it and it keeps our skill set frosty. So, uh, if you're a uh, think you might be a good fit, uh, let us know. And, and, and of course, if you're if you're not ready for Julie and I personally, we have what I believe to be some of the best, most talented, sincerely uh, service-minded coaches in the industry who will also be uh, potentially a great fit for you as well. So, Mr. Michael Gordon, I sincerely appreciate. Um, Connecting with you. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time on the radio. And uh, you know what? Thanks for being a friend for all these years, too. I appreciate that as well.
2: Feeling is mutual. Thank you, Tim.
1: Uh, listeners, we'll talk with you on the radio tomorrow. Don't forget to do, as always, after every radio show. Please do share this with as many other agents as you can. Uh, let Michael and Robin Gordon's success story be the inspiration for you to build your own uh Dream business. That's what it's all about. Is there anything we can ever do to help you guys? Got the information on how to reach out. Have a fantastic day, and we'll talk with you on the radio tomorrow.
0: This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time. Thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris.